today is Palm Sunday. Now, <clears throat> that is not, you're never going to find that term, Palm Sunday, in the Bible anyplace. That is a, a church uh, holiday, a, 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 quote, religious holiday, Palm Sunday, the, uh, the Sunday before Easter. And I'm not much of a traditionalist, and you, I guess you might have figured that out. And so I, I honestly don't remember. I'm, I'm sure that I must have, in the 35 years that I've been a, a, a pastor, I'm sure I must have preached a Palm Sunday message. But I honestly don't remember uh, that I have until today. And I was preparing for today uh, by reading, once again, the accounts of the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem for the final week of his earthly ministry. And um, the record of this event is in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is a significant event um, that is worth our paying attention to this morning. And I want to have you have that video that we just uh, saw in your minds as we read these words beginning at verse 1 of Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, that's a city, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying... Before I read what comes next, let me just... Because I, I, this is important. Let me highlight this. Matthew, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this gospel. When he gets to this point... He is giving us some information that, you know, is occurring to him. The Lord is helping him to see, wow, this was something that was prophesied by Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who, uh, a prophet means that he was speaking about things that were yet to come. And so Isaiah was saying these things hundreds of years before Jesus was, was uh, born, before the nativity. And so Looking forward to the role of Messiah in the world, he says these words that we're about to read. And Matthew says what Jesus was doing that day, what we call Palm Sunday, was in fulfillment of these words. Here we go, verse 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, that means the people of God. Tell the people of God, behold, your king is coming to you. So when Jesus mounted that humble donkey and began to ride in the city, one the, as the people, uh, a parade formed and people were uh, declaring, which we'll read in a minute, uh, his messiahship, he was doing so to announce to the world, your king has come. And it says that he did so lowly, humbly. And riding or sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's part of Isaiah's prophecy. Now back to the narrative. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. And he 
very, excuse me, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out. So get this, the picture. Jesus is riding on the donkey. And there's people that are going before them, uh, before him and people that are following behind. And some of them are, uh, have uh, laid down clothes in the path of this donkey. And some have laid down palm branches. It's a parade. And it says that the multitude went before and those who followed cried out saying... Hosanna, that word means save now. Hosanna to the son of David. That term, son of David, uh, was, is a direct reference to the Messiah. So these people are shouting, save now, Messiah. They were boldly declaring that they believed Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who fulfills all of their hopes and dreams. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Now, this was a season when the city would have been bulging with people and pilgrims. And it says the whole city was a buzz with what was happening as Jesus entered the city in this parade-like fashion. And the city was moved saying, who is this? Not quite the same thing, but a few years ago, not being a resident of Fairfield, I didn't know that the tomato festival happens here once a year. And one day I was just driving downtown, down Main Street there, and there's all these people and food and booths and Things, streets were closed off. I couldn't get to the place I was trying to get to. And I remember thinking, what is going on here? And that kind of thing was happening in Jerusalem. Jesus is coming into town on a donkey and all of these people are shouting and so on. And everybody is like, what is going on here? Verse 11. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Of course, we know he was more than a prophet. He was the son of God. Now, Jesus is making this scene in contrast to the last three years of his ministry, wherein, as we heard in that video, he was always putting, putting down this emotional response of people to be exuberant about his messiahship and his healing power and, and all of that. He was always downplaying that, always keeping a lid on that until today, till this day. Why? In fact, I was, as I read this again, this, um, I guess it was this week, I wrote on my notepad, why did he do that? Those words, why did he do that? Why today? Why now? Did he uncork it? Why did he let the people all of a sudden now uh, go nuts? If you were going to make a triumphal entry, let's say you come rolling into Fairfield today or Cordelia and you've got a chauffeur-driven uh, convertible um, limousine, you're in the back there, you know, waving to everybody and the, the marching band has gone before you and the mounted uh, you know, troops are, are following behind and, and you come rolling into town here, what people would be saying is, what is this all about? 
waiting for the answer to that question. What is this all about? And so they're going to be watching for the first thing you do when you arrive. Because that's going to be the answer to the question, what, this is, what is this about? So in answer to the question, why did he do this now? Why did he do this? It was so out of character for him. We need to take a look at what he first did when he arrived. We find that in verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers or, uh, and, and the seats of those who sold doves. Uh, we've covered this passage before and anybody who knows me knows I can get stuck on here on this, these few verses for weeks because I have gained over the course of my life in Christ so much of how I understand the church from, and what he intends it to be from these verses. So pardon me for indulging that part of me that just loves these verses. But it is the answer to the question, why did he do it? He did it so that he could cleanse the temple of the obstacles that were keeping people from the presence of God. Listen to what he says in verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What is a house of prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is communicating with God. So a house of prayer, a place designated as a house of prayer, means this is a place where people are supposed to meet God. He came into town with a big parade to say, my house is supposed to be a place where people meet God. But you have made it a den of thieves. A den is a closed system. A den is like a cave. It only has so many people can get in it. A den of thieves. A den, like I said, is a closed system. And many of us know that churches can easily, congregations, houses that are supposed to be houses of prayer, places where people can meet God, can easily, quickly become closed systems where you got to wear the right things. You got to know what to say. You got to have the secret handshake. You got to, you know, you got to know when to stand up and when to kneel. You got to know what the songs, uh, how to sing the songs, all of that stuff. And if you're not one of the initiated, then you're on the outside. There's outsiders and there's insiders. And once you have a den going, there's so much, uh, so much at stake. You don't want that nice and tight little group of people to be infiltrated by the unwashed masses. Forgetting that you once were not, not part of the unwashed masses, but you know, can't, we can't afford to have the interruption that an outsider would bring. So we keep it closed. And the Lord says that that idea or that concept actually robs people of my presence. A den of thieves you have become. I have to read this periodically because it's really easy for me as a, a leader of a church to engage in, in the kind of stuff that human beings just naturally are inclined to do that create closed, tight, little cozy systems that nobody can break into but when we do, when we do that, we are creating barriers to God and people being able to get to him uh, in the ways that he intends. 
and it happens fast and it's really uh, easy where we start adding things to the, the, you know, what we call worship and church and so on that begin to be barriers to what Jesus said his house is supposed to be. And that's what Jesus came in to do, to remove all of the barriers. These things, the offering of sacrificial animals for sale in the temple and the exchanging of monies, they were originally um, set in place as ways to uh, assist people in their worship, especially those coming from long distances. But over time, they had become actually barriers to people meeting God. And I, there's a lot I could say about that, but I won't. Because the more important thing is found in Isaiah chapter 56. I'd like you to have you turn there now, because when Jesus said those words, my house is to be called a house of prayer, he was lifting a few words out of a single verse from Isaiah chapter 56. But he was speaking, those, when he said that, he was talking to the religious leaders, the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. And these guys, they knew the Bible, the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. So when Jesus referred to, the, just used those few words, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, they all knew the larger context. They knew. He was talking about Isaiah 56. On, the, on that day, when Jesus made his triumphal entry, Isaiah tells us that he was he was declaring, I am the king who's come for you. The, your king has come for you. Your king has come. That's what we read there in Matthew. Who did this king come for? Isaiah 56 tells us. Specifically, two kinds of people. Let's read together, starting at uh, verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. The first of the two types of people, uh, let me just get this out of the way, the two types of people that Isaiah 56 tells us Jesus was specifically declaring he had come for through his triumphal entry are seekers and sinners. I bet I'm speaking to some of those right now because I know I have, I am, I have been. And Jesus said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. He was referring to this passage that begins by saying, don't let the foreigner, the son of the foreigner, the outsider, the person who doesn't belong but is trying to belong, the seeker, don't let that person get this idea in his head that he is utterly separated from the Lord. People who are seeking God can often feel that way. Like they're on the outside looking in and don't know how. There's something inside of them that's longing for, for uh, the relationship with God that they're catching glimpses of in some of our lives, and, but they don't know how to get in. And it's easy for them to begin to get this idea, well, I'm just, you know, somehow, this is my lot in life. I'm cut off from the people of God, the family of God. But the Lord says, don't, don't let them have that impression. In fact, look at verse 6. 
the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus was saying, or the, the Lord was saying, God Almighty was saying, in these words through Isaiah in the 56th chapter, my house is supposed to be for the seeker to find me. And he says there, I'm going to bring them to my holy mountain." You know, when I was a kid, I, I had a paper route. Anybody here uh, old enough to know even what that is? Okay, so I was, I was the guy with the bicycle and the big bags that hung off with the full of newspapers, and you'd throw them onto the porches of people. And, and I did this thing where we would periodically, just at night, nobody would do this anymore. It would be like against the law. But at night, a kid, little kid, I'd go door to door in my neighborhood and just uh, ask people if they wanted to buy the newspaper, subscribe to the newspaper. So I was doing that one day. And I come to this house. I knock on the door. The door opens. And the person says, we've been waiting for you. And I'd never had that reception before. I could see behind the person that there was a party going on and all of these people. And I thought, what does he mean? We've been waiting for you. Apparently, I looked exactly like somebody that they were expecting for the party. <laughs> and I, so I said, okay. And I, <laughs> I walked on in, had some cake and stuff. And <laughs> the, God, the seeker, you and me, those who are pursuing a relationship with God, one of the things that we find out almost immediately is that he has drawn me. He's expecting me. It's not like, you know, God just goes, well, okay, you can come on in. No, we've been expecting you. I have been pursuing you. I thought I was seeking him. He was seeking me. I will bring them. To my holy mountain. And then he goes on and says, and they will be joyful in my house of prayer. This, is, this word, uh, Hebrew word for joy or joyful here as it is in the text we read, is the kind of joy that happens when, you know, you watch those commercials of the people who uh, win the uh, publisher's clearinghouse. Whoa! Yeah, that kind of joy that, you know, something just ignites it and it's explosive. And when they show you the video after, you go, oh my goodness, I did that. That kind of joy. And God is saying that my, my heart towards you, dear one, is that you feel like you far more than you would feel if you hit the, won the lottery. That kind of, whoa. I'm a child of God. That kind of thing. And then he says, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. You and I don't have the cultural perspective to grasp the significance of this, but in Jewish life, the altar was the most sacred place aside from the Holy of Holies. 
And, uh, you know, if you're a foreigner, if you're not, you know, if you're not one of the uh, uh, special few, you don't get to come to the altar. But the Lord says, there's no such barriers in my house of prayer. The foreigner gets access to the deepest things. The, 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 the seeker gets to find in all of the fullness of what that would mean. There's nothing, dear one, that I or you are locked out of. And we live in a time, I'll just acknowledge this, we live in a time when it's increasingly the case where people don't have any natural connections. They're not raised up in their families uh, to have natural connections to the things of God. They're not taught the Bible. They're not taken to church. And so a lot of us, a lot of us, we've been seeking God without a map. We know what it is to be a foreigner, to be on the outside looking in and trying to figure out how to get in. We didn't know that God was drawing us in and all the way in. But that's the heart of God. That's what Jesus triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem to declare that day. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer, a place where people meet God, not only foreigners, but sinners. Read uh, the last part of verse 3 of, of Isaiah 56. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. In other words, as much as we don't want, the, as the Lord uh, is making it clear that the foreigner should never get the idea that he's cut off from the people of God. He says the eunuch, don't let the eunuch get the idea that he is a shriveled up dry tree. Well, we have to talk about what a eunuch is and it's not pleasant. A eunuch is a man who has been castrated, undergone surgical removal of part of his anatomy a very important part of his anatomy. Why? Why would anybody do that? Think about this. Kings in those days were considered to be gods. And there were people who were so devoted to their false god that they were willing to undergo, to pay that high of a price, to undergo that kind of scarring to their life in order to be of service to the king. Because you could have a place of uh, high prominence in the king's household if you were not a sexual threat to him, especially in the areas of, of tending to the harem and so on. You could have the king's ear. So these, a eunuch is a person who bears the scars of their idolatry. We don't like to think about this, but dear ones... A lot of us are in that boat. A lot of us bear the scars of serving a false god. That God might be yourself. That God might be pleasure. That God might be material things. That God might be the acceptance of others. That God might be entertainment and distraction. That God might be prominence or notoriety. Whatever it is that you go to bed at night thinking about and wake up in the morning thinking about, that thing you give your time to and your money to, that is your God. 
And many of us have paid a high price to serve that God. And we bear the scars of it, don't we? And those scars uh, prohibit us. In our minds, they prohibit us from imagining a fruitful future. A eunuch had no future, could not have children, could not have descendants. He was cut off from the future. And so that's the Lord says, don't let the eunuch think. In my house, don't let the eunuch think that he is a dried tree, hopeless, no future. Look at verse um, 4. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The Lord said, he says, I'm going to give you a place, belonging, belonging. Years ago, uh, I, many, many years ago, I don't even want to think about how long ago it was, I got to visit Old North Church, this very historic place in Boston. And this is not the only uh, historic church building that this would be true of. Around the country, there's plenty of of these old historic um, church meeting houses where this would be true, but I had never seen it before. I went into Old North Church and I went to sit down and, uh, you know, there wasn't a service going on. I was just looking around. I sat down and I noticed that on the chair there was a plate with somebody's name on it. And then I, so I kind of asked around and I figured out, well, this was common practice. This is how the, partly how the church was supported. People rented their seats in church and you got your name on it, on a plaque there on your seat. We ought to have one for you, Gary, because you sit in that chair every single week. <laughs> now, I think it's a little weird, you know, I don't, but, you know, we're, we're actually in the process of considering buying some new chairs, and so I'm kind of rethinking that a little bit. I mean, it would be a good idea, but no, I'm just kidding. But dear ones, in the household of God, you have a reserved seat. A reserved seat. Your name is on it. When the sinner, sin-scarred idolater that I once was, came into faith and began to be, uh, live out my destiny as a child of God, one of the first things I found out is that there was a place for me. And so it is for you too. And those that you are concerned about this morning who don't yet know the Lord. I will bring them into my house and they will find a place and a name, an identity, why is that important? Because for many of us, our service of a false god has become our identity. It's how we think about ourselves and how others see us too. But the Lord says, no, that's not the real you. No, I know your name. Did you know that the Bible says God knows your name? And it's probably not the one that other people know you by. 
but it's the one he knows you were destined for. And then it says that this identity uh, is better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. He's talking about their future. And boy, you know, some of us who've who've, uh, been through it and bear the deep scars of our of our life is of sin. We can tend to think that, um, you know, if I just get to heaven, that's, that'll be good. That'll be more than good. You know, I'm good with that. I'm going to heaven. But listen, God has so much. There's, there's no limit to what God's redemptive power can do in a person's life. Your future in the kingdom of God is not dependent upon your sinning past but on the amazing forgiveness of a God of grace. That is what determines your future, dear one. When Jesus came right into town that day, that's what he was declaring. I've come for you. The king has come for you. Sinners and seekers. This is recording number 11204 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 20, 2016. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, He Came for Us.